This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle Show. My name is Kim Jones, and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. We're now barreling towards 2020, which means the primary election grows ever closer. Texas will be one of more than a dozen states holding our primary election on so-called Super Tuesday on March 3rd, and early voting starts even sooner than that on February 18th. The battle for the Democratic presidential nomination is, of course, a national obsession, but we've got a lot of other interesting races here in Texas that we've been tracking at the Austin Chronicle, and I have asked my colleague, Michael King, to join me to shed a little light on these races. Michael, thanks for coming in. I'm glad to be here, Kim. So there are a lot of races, a lot of candidates jockeying for their party nominations in March, and in your news feature this week, you have cinched the focus to U.S. Senate and U.S. House races. So let's start there. Okay. Let's start with the Senate race. It's a good thing to see that there are so many candidates. Uh, literally, a couple people have filed uh, just since we went to press with this story, but not, uh, most of them don't have a shot. I mean, you need to run statewide in Texas. You need a lot of money. You, it's, just a, it's just a fact of life. It's a huge state with a lot of media markets and a lot of people, you know, more than 20 million people. So uh, realistically speaking, only a handful of those folks that have filed John Cornyn is essentially a walkover on the Republican side. He does have a couple of opponents. He uh, is, sorry to interrupt, he is our, what, three-time GOP incumbent now, I think? Uh, that's right. Okay. Yeah, and uh, and he hasn't really been challenged. But the Democrats put a scare into a cruise the last time with Beto O'Rourke, and so that made everybody think, well, maybe Cornyn is vulnerable. And you'll hear a lot of people say he doesn't even have the uh, – uh, the name idea of Cruz, I don't know if that's true, but he's been more of the shadows. He's still kind of seen as an institutional Republican, uh, Mitch McConnell's um, uh, right-hand man, and not really an independent thinker, which has kind of actually uh, declined for him. When he was AG in Texas, he was really good on uh, open records laws, for example. But the institutional Republican Party has just gotten so polarized that unless you run hard to the right, you don't have a prayer. Uh, and he's got a ton of money. Uh, I don't know what the figure was I cited here. Oh, nearly $11 million cash on hand as of uh, the last quarter. Hmm. Nobody else approaches that on the Democratic side. But you don't need $11 million to run. You, you need a couple hundred thousand at least. And there's at least uh, five Democrats that have uh, that kind of money. Uh, U.S. Uh, Rep. Uh, Chris Bell, who's, uh, who ran for governor against Perry and lost. City Council member Amanda Edwards, she's an at-large member, which means that she's got a Houston area base. Christina Tsinsun Ramirez, who's a Austin favorite uh, due to her work with the Workers' Defense Project and JOLT. And she also has a statewide presence for the same reason. Uh, State Rep. Uh, Royce West from Dallas, and he's been around a long time at the legislature, so he's got a lot of institutional support. The sort of default front runner, uh, mainly because she was the early runner here, is M.J. Hager, Mary, Mary 
Mary Jane, is it? I've forgotten. I don't remember. <laughs> she just yeah. goes by everybody Mary. just goes by MJ. She just MJ. goes by MJ, yeah. yeah. By now you would think I would know that, but everybody just called her MJ, including herself. And uh, she ran a really good race in uh, TX31 last time around in 2018 against John Carter. And in a race that had been routinely uh, double digits, she lost by three points. People thought she would run again and probably win there. But she decided to shift focus. Right. After O'Rourke and uh, Wendy Davis decided they were not going to go after Corna, and she looked at, at that point, there was nobody else running. Uh, and she decided, well, somebody's got to go after him. And so, so far, she's made a good race of it. And she's completely pounded Corna, and she's sort of ignored her Democratic uh, rivals, which may change, I guess, over the last eight weeks of the uh of the as they get uh, as they have more public events together and and crosstalk and so on, they roughly break into what are called the moderate and progressive wings of the Democratic Party, which is defined in national terms now, partly because of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Is are you for the Green New Deal and are you for a Medicare for all? I think that's a pretty dull knife. But that puts uh, Christina Ramirez and Chris Bell probably in the so-called progressive wing and the other three, uh, Edwards, Hagar, and West as as more in the institutional, traditional uh, uh, Democrat or centrist, which is a sneer term now. Probably the hardest left of the whole bunch is Seema Hernandez, who's a poor people's activist in Houston, but she has no money at all. She's she's running an angry race, a real Bernie Sanders uh, supporting race, but she's only got like $3,000. So mm. there's just no way you can run statewide with that amount of money. Maybe, maybe in this last quarter, which ends uh, at the end of the year, maybe she'll suddenly sow big resources. There's You still hear rumors, I think sometimes just people looking for clicks, that say Beto or Julian Castro might still run and they have until Monday night. Yeah, the clock is ticking, right? <laughs> so, you know, a couple of no names have since filed and just in the last couple of days. Yeah. Uh, my favorite is Victor Hugo, which I guess is not exactly a no name. <laughs> Definitely. He's got a name. Yeah. Uh, and an impressive body of work behind him. Yes, but uh, but uh, not not likely. I mean, I, I often wonder what these folks that just do it out of a, of a kind of well, I could be a senator. I mean, God bless them, but you know, you could <laughs> I could think of better things to use my time. Sure. <laughs> well, so I'm I'm wondering why are people still waiting for Beto or one of the Castro brothers to enter this race? Are they I mean, because that the the field you just described to me is an eclectic one. It's a, you know, a lot of talented folks in their ranks. Why are we still waiting for something better to come along? Uh, yeah, waiting for Godot. Um, <laughs> you know, that's a good question. And I think it's sort of a consultant's uh, fantasy that there's a perfect candidate out there. You can see it at the presidential race where where everybody's trying to think of, you know, who's the who can be Trump. And it's this ideal white man who does has yet appeared on the horizon. It's kind of silly. I mean, you go run with the sure. candidates that you can run with. And I suppose somebody is waiting for a uh, progressive millionaire to run against Cornyn, and there is no such person. It's an oxymoron, in fact. So I think any one of these five, at least, could give Corn a run for his money. But he has a lot of money. He's been around a long time. And this is still a Republican state unless voters prove it differently next November. So 
Uh, it'll be an interesting primary fight. The biggest problem with the current Democratic field is name ID. Across the state, people don't know these folks yet. Uh, I mean, people really know Royce West in Dallas. People know, really know Simpson Ramirez in Austin, uh, Amanda Aaronwards in, in uh, Houston. But it's a statewide race. And so then you have to wonder, okay, and I think that's what people – Castro and Beto have national names now. Sure. So it's kind of natural to say, well, gee, if one of them got in a race, yeah. but they'd have some of the same problems. So uh, we'll see. Okay. Well, let's let's switch our focus now to the, the U.S. House. What are we looking at there? And how many districts are we looking at for our Austin listenership? Right. Well, I mean, because of, of GOP gerrymandering, Austin is the biggest city in the country that does not have a congressional district anchored by population in Austin. Right. And that was intentional. Absolutely. And to really nail that home, what, is, what does that mean? Well, it, it means that all of our candidates have to kind of run elsewhere. Although in the primary, the Austin Democrats carry a heavy weight, not so much in the November election, just because these are stretched out districts. So there are six districts that have some part of Austin. The only one that is compact and contiguous in the in the standard of redist- conventional redistricting, which almost never happens, is 31, which has all of Williamson County and most of Bell County. And part of that is a growing population portion of, uh, of Austin. Uh, which makes the Austin votes, gives them a heavier weight. That's Mm -hmm. 31, and there's a good battle going on there. Of the six districts, one is a de facto Democratic district. That's Lloyd's Dog. It's TX35, which runs, is anchored again in San Antonio, but runs up I-35 to Austin. And it's packed with Democrats to get them out of the surrounding districts. So that's pretty much a default Mm -hmm. Democratic district for Doggett. All the other five are drawn to elect Republicans, but they've gotten tighter, and three of them got to, have gotten especially tighter. TX10, which runs from um, Lakeway almost all the way to Houston suburbs, northern suburbs, uh, That's that's got three Democratic candidates and in it. And that's a seat that's currently held by eight-term GOP incumbent Michael McCall, Michael right? McCall, okay. but, but last time Mike Siegel made it a four-point race, which was unheard of. McCall had been winning by double digits mm-hmm. he didn't even have to campaign and Siegel's back for another round he's back and then there's um, Pritesh Gandhi who's a local doctor people's clinic doctor and uh, Shannon Hutchinson who's a civil attorney and that one's gotten a little heated in the last few weeks uh, Gandhi and Siegel attacking uh, Hutchinson for being seen as one a corporate defender uh, she's taken on some dicey clients although she's run really on her uh, record of working for Planned Parenthood, but she's also, you know, defended abusive guards for corrections, corporations, international. Mm -hmm. So that's become, just in the last couple of weeks, an issue because there was an article in the Observer about it. Texas Observer did a piece on it. Then the next competitive race is probably 21, which is the Wendy Davis race. Uh, She's probably a little unfair because Jenny Lou Leader is another candidate there. But Davis has the name recognition sure. and all the money, so uh, leader's a long shot. Uh, Davis has already started running against incumbent Chip Roy, who didn't win easily last time against Joseph Kopser. So that 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 one's going to be a tough one for Roy to win for the simple reason that, like Ted Cruz, people say even his friends don't like him. He's, mm-hmm. a, he's a nasty piece of work <laughs> on the floor uh, of the House and even campaigning. 
But it is, again, drawn to elect a Republican, and they're going to call her abortion Barbie and everything else they can think of. Now, the last time that Wendy Davis ran for in a state race was for governor, and it was pretty a pretty catastrophic right. campaign. Do we think she's got a better shot this time? We think she has staff? a better side in a, in, a, yeah. in a district race. Yeah, I mean, it's still uphill for, for uh, Democrats statewide, although she would probably do better this go-around running for Senate, for example. But... Cops are showed that it's a winnable district. And in a wave election 2018, obviously Democrats made a lot of uh, progress. I mean, they flipped, flipped the U.S. House. And, and they expect to flip or want to flip the Texas House this time around. I didn't go into those races yet in the paper. I think, you know, it, it's, a, it's a well-defined race for 21. And uh, presuming... Davis wins a nomination. I think she's got a, a, a really good shot. And then finally in 31, which is that that uh, Williamson County, uh, Bell County district mm-hmm. I was describing, I think my last count is 10 candidates, oh of which goodness. probably five or six have a good shot. Christine Edeman, also a, a primary care doctor who uh, lost to Hagar in the primary last time around, she's been running since. Which is interesting that she came out pretty early declared her candidacy, 10, 10 people or nine people have joined the race since then, which signals something. Yeah. And in fact, I, you even hear that maybe a couple more will, will um, hmm. file before Monday. I think maybe it's reached capacity, but we'll see. She's tried to juggle full-time doctor responsibilities with campaigning responsibilities. Hmm. And when I've talked to her, she said she's, you know, she's juggling it. That sounds tough to me. I mean, even Gandhi in uh, in Austin uh, has cut way back on mm-hmm. his uh, his medical responsibilities. Donna Imam is running sort of as a Barry Sanders Democrat. She's a computer consultant. Recently, Tammy Young, who's a Round Rock Council member, entered. I know very little about her, but simply the fact that she entered and she's got a public face in Round Rock, which is obviously a place to gather votes strikes me that she must think Carter is vulnerable and that she's got a good shot. There's a restaurateur named Jen Jigian who's also famous for being in one of the world's worst movies, uh, The Room. <laughs> wow. Uh, and for it's being... claimed to something. Right, right. And he was in the Olympics as an Ar- Armenian... Uh, Sledder. I've forgotten what event it was, one of those ice sled things. Yeah, that but, is a life well lived. <laughs> right. Uh, who else? There's a, a singer-songwriter named Eric Hankey, who also, I guess, is a, is a Social Security consultant or retirement consultant. I don't think anybody knows who's going to come out in that. Mm-hmm. I guess Edie Mann was going to get a, a run from Murray Holcomb, a different doctor, but he withdrew for family reasons and threw his support to Edie Mann, so that may help her. Uh, that's when I've got to look, take a closer look at in the next month. So let's let's sort of take a step back. Just uh, you know, we're running out of time here, and I just want your thoughts on. I feel like every election cycle since I've been a voting adult has the narrative has been Texas might be in play this time. Texas, we think we're a battleground state. Turn in Texas blue. It feels like this time, maybe. Yes. It's like, let's talk about what does it mean Texas is in play? Yeah, I think the refrain in the past has always been as soon as the Hispanics start voting uh, in great numbers. But in light of the 2018 election, it's no longer just something that people throw out there. It was clearly a motivated election. 
This next November one is likely to be highly motivated for Democrats. Uh, you and I talked a little bit about the uh, the Trump factor, which most of the candidates stay away from, but it's floating around all the time. If we get a decent candidate at the top of the ticket, uh, at the very top of the ticket, that draws people out for a presidential election, and I think, say, Beto uh, succeeds in his determination to increase registration and, and help all these Democratic candidates, the DCCC has finally set up shop here in Austin with eight organizers working with something they've never done before. They usually just mine Texas for money. D- tell, tell our listeners what DCCC stands The DCCC is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, gotcha. which uh, works on the congressional side. There's also a Senate committee, but they, they're not as heavily invested here. And they're getting blasted by the candidates who aren't who are say anti-establishment. But I mean, it's a good sign that they've decided to spend money in people in mm-hmm. Texas. And the people I talked to at the Texas House are more optimistic than I've ever heard them. Uh, that there are as many as as twenty races that are flippable. They won't get all of those, but all they need to flip the House is nine. So we shall see. That's a subject for a next article. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, out of curiosity, do you see the way that the national uh, elections are playing out, or the national races? Is that impacting Texas politics at all? You know, are is Trump such a unifying factor for Democrats? You know, it's a funny thing when you talk to individual candidates; um, they stay on message, which is health care, uh, education, immigration. Although especially those last two, but all three of those subjects are about the Republican Party as well and their failure on those scores. And they say that, you know, we talk about kitchen table issues. We don't talk about Trump when we're out on the stump. But I think he's going to be unavoidable, uh, partly because of the impeachment and partly because just his tendency to suck up all the crazy energy in the room. So we'll see if impeachment has legs, even if it doesn't. I think Democratic voters and a lot of independents are saying enough is enough. And if they turn out in enough numbers in Texas, yeah, it's definitely in play, which would change the landscape completely on the national scale. Well, we have a very long road ahead of us, and I'm sure you will be back in the studio with us soon to talk about more of all of the all the races on the ballot. All right. Well, I'll be glad to glad to do that. Just sitting at the desk and just staring at the laptop is not as much fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us today, Michael. There's no shortage of film festivals in Austin, but only one that I know of is devoted exclusively to science fiction films. That would be the Other Worlds Film Festival, and it is back for its sixth year this weekend at the Galaxy Highland. So joining me now to talk about what's playing at this year's festival is Chronicle Screens Editor Richard Whitaker. Hey, Kim. Thanks for joining us, Richard. Oh, my pleasure. So this festival was founded in 2014, and it has really taken off since then. Why don't you walk us through the short but impressive life of other worlds? Well, I remember back in uh, 2014, uh, Bears Fonte contacted me and said, hey, um, I've been inspired by the people at uh, the sadly now defunct Housecore Horror Film Festival to do a small local science fiction film festival. And... It was two screens at Galaxy Highland, and the rest is history. It's become one of the most noteworthy, dedicated science fiction film festivals around. It has year-round programming, and this year, as you said, is the sixth actual main festival that runs all this weekend. One of the things it's become really strong on is finding a place for 
major figures in science fiction film history that people may not remember and giving them a, a, a weekend of celebration. And they have the Defender of the Universe Award. And this year, uh, it's going to Nicholas Mayer, who you may not have heard of, um, but you've definitely seen, if you've seen a Star Trek film, odds are you've seen one of his because he directed Wrath of Khan, he directed Star Trek Four, and he directed Star Trek Six. So, a.k.a. the good ones. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, but they're also going to be showing tomorrow night as the uh, the opening film. Uh, they're going to be showing Time After Time, which is his time-traveling Jack the Ripper versus H.G. Wells film, which is a wonderful movie. They're also going to be showing Star Trek VI. And it's a real opportunity to celebrate his work. But it's not all just about you know people with a legacy in, in science fiction. It's also about people with a legacy that they're building a legacy now with new films that are uh, sci-fi based or increasingly horror based because there is the underworld stream within other worlds which starts off as kind of science fiction film with a horror element and now has become a whole fully fledged horror component within the fest within the bigger festival itself. Okay, so if you're somebody like me who can't stand the sight of blood or anything horror-esque there are still lots of options oh, absolutely in fact there is one uh, uh there's some that I've, I've seen already and there is one that is just wonderful it is called around the sun and it is and i'm not kidding basically an adaptation of a science tract from 1656 <laughs> no i'm not kidding the book was called on the plurality of worlds and it was written by a French philosopher called Fontenelle. And it's this wonderful, playful book where it's a philosopher and an aristocrat. And they're walking around her mansion and her estates discussing whether the stars are just lights in the sky or whether there are the, are the suns and how the world is structured. It's been rewritten uh, for this film as basically a, a kind of this beautiful courtship story about a film location scout and the woman who's showing him around this mansion house in Normandy. And it's beautiful and it's clever and it's witty. There's no big science fiction elements to it. It's just a conversation about alternate worlds. And it's wonderful. Yeah, it's just the kind of thing where you sit there and go, yes, this is science fiction, but it's not you know, lasers and spaceships. And this is one of the things I love about Other Worlds is it has this kind of diversity of titles that it does so well. Mm -hmm. Well, another one I was struck by was they're going to be screening an archival uh, film. They're going to be screening an old James Wales movie, the old, the old Dark House from 1932. With a new live score. Right. That's one of the other things they do is they bring in old titles and they do these live scores. And it, it's a wonderful experience that if you've never been there watching a film where you suddenly go, this is what it would have been like watching it when it first came out when there wasn't sound and you had to wait for the organist to kick in. And it's a, it's a, just a glorious experience if you've never done it. What is So this is over the course of three days. It's all contained in one movie theater, the, the Galaxy. What's the vibe like for that kind of festival? Very relaxed, very chill. Very receptive as well. I think in part that's because it, it's kind of been under the radar. It is the last festival on the calendar. It, people, A lot of people go, oh, it's a science fiction festival, and they think they know what that's going to be. But when you get there, it's just a, a wonderfully receptive environment. A lot of filmmakers are coming in. And science fiction, particularly low-budget science fiction, it, it struggles sometimes to find an audience. So they're just glad to be there and have an audience talking to them who knows their material and knows what they're trying to do. And I, I find it actually one of the most enjoyable ways to wrap up the, the Austin Film Festival mm -hmm. calendar, which, as you said, gets 
pretty packed. But now we got a brief respite until uh, South by Southwest bears down upon us. That's but right. this is a beautiful way to finish it out. Well, I can sort of see your faces lighting up just talking about this. <laughs> this is definitely this is Richard's sweet spot. Oh yeah, this is this is absolutely. And the the other thing is there's some great comedies in here as well, ah. including one that I saw out of uh, Fantasia, which is the. Um, uh, one of the Canadian film festivals, uh, and it's called Lake Michigan Monster. And I can honestly only describe it as, imagine if the monkeys made the lighthouse. <laughs> it's such a strange, it's black and white. It's got this wonderful offbeat sense of humor, and it's about revenge and sea monsters. And it's completely crazy and wonderful fun. Just if you pick one thing that you want to just like, I want something weird and strange and relaxing. There are still some passes available for the festival. You can get individual tickets for some screenings as well. Okay. And there are also, you know, there are international filmmakers are going to be showing here, but we've got Austin filmmakers representing too as well. We do. It is the homecoming for Scare Package, uh, which is a locally made anthology horror. It's uh, produced by uh, Cameron Burns and Aaron Kuntz, who are also responsible for... It's produced by Aaron Kuntz and Cameron Burns, who uh, made a local horror called Camera Obscura and uh, have just wrapped production on a new new horror called The Pale Door, which is getting a lot of buzz already in post-production. But Scare Package, it kind of takes on all the tropes of horror. It's like... The monster in the woods and weird diseases and VHS stores. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's really hilarious. It's got a lot of local talent in it, a lot of local actors. They got very lucky. They got Joe Bob Briggs just before he had the current Joe Bob Briggs renaissance and became yet again B-movies go-to academic expert. Dustin Runnels, who's uh, better known to a lot of people as Gold Dust the Wrestler. He's in it uh, in a, a wonderful role that I will not spoil. But Emily Hagens uh, directed one of the, uh, the segments, probably best known for the documentary Zombie Girl, but also for the wonderful comedies uh, Grew Up Tony Phillips and... Um, my Sucky Teen Romance? My Sucky Teen Romance, yeah. yeah. So she's back. She does the uh, the opening segment, which is literally called cold open and yeah that's that's a great one for me because I actually saw them shooting it when they were shooting it down at Brackenridge Hospital just before they demolished it and they were leaving holes in the walls and I said aren't you worried that the uh, maintenance team are going to be worried about it and they said no they're demolishing this in two weeks time we're literally <laughs> okay. the last people in the building before this gets knocked down so we can wreak as much havoc as we want mm-hmm. Aaron when I talked to him is particularly proud because this film may actually set the record for the largest amount of blood splatter uh, there are films that have, I know <laughs> your face is a picture at this moment, yeah. but there are films that have pools of blood and stuff like that. But this, for just sheer amount of blood sprayed and splattered and lathered over characters, this may actually set the record, which in horror circles is a major achievement. Sure, I'm sure. Well, and I, as you pointed out, you you spoke with the filmmakers, and it's it's in this week's issue. And I loved the detail of as they were working on the script that they were watching other horror anthologies taking notes, making graphs, and taking this real sort of this analytical approach to crafting the perfect algorithm for for a horror anthology. Well, it's been weird because anthologies went away for years and you'd have the odd portmanteau film that would come through but you know something like trick or treat which the studios didn't know what to do with and now has become this ubiquitous wonderful loved horror film that people crack out the DVD every single year. But we've been a resurgence and, you know, talking to Aaron, one of the things he said was that he was very nervous about even making this because what do we have new to say? So he literally, like you said, went through and got every single film and said, what's the ones I like? 
What's, what appeals about them? What segments work? What kind of structures work? And he's got a graph somewhere, and he's promised me he's going to show it to me. He's also, at some point, we're going to sit down and go through all the horror Easter eggs in there. So if you like going through and spotting references to other horror films, this one is absolutely jam-packed for you. Well, it sounds like there's a lot to choose from at the Other Worlds Film Festival that's happening this weekend. And if you want to know more about that and hear more about some of the things that are screening, this week's Austin Chronicle for Richard's preview of the festival. And that is going to do it for us for the week. Thanks to our guests again, Michael King and Richard Whitaker. Thanks also go to our engineer, Bob Daly, and to Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson, as ever, for writing our theme music. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.